Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Well, my name is Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. And if you're new with us, special welcome to you. We're in week two of a series we're calling Bad Advice, where we're seeking to replace um, bad advice with biblical truth. And we all know that in different seasons of our life, perhaps we've had like a well-intentioned person or perhaps someone that wasn't that well-intentioned, give us advice. And over the series of years in our life, we've realised that that advice did not hold up, the bottom fell out, and we wish that we had something better. And last week, we looked at the, a topic called um, judge, judge Not Lest You Be Judged. And I would like to you know, encourage you guys to jump onto YouTube and got the sermons for the last seven years from our church in there. So you can check that message out. But tonight, we turn our attention to a different topic. And this, um, the topic that we're looking at tonight is advice that I got given by my dad, advice that I was given, um, given to me by my teacher. And it's this piece of advice. Don't take your faith too seriously. I wonder if you've ever got this piece of advice before. Don't take your faith too seriously. And it is true that there's many things in life that we actually do take too seriously. You know, we've all got that little pet hobby. And when we talk about that pet hobby, everyone around us, the kind of the eyes roll on the back of their head and the hair stands up on the back of the neck. And you just want to escape the room. It might be that that person's like a CrossFitter and wants to tell you all about the world of CrossFit might be that that person is uh, into American politics and knows everything that's going on and wants to talk to you about American politics. Or maybe that, maybe that person is an online grammar Nazi and that person is really interested in telling you all the different ways that people are getting grammar right and grammar wrong online and they're taking it way, way too seriously. Well, the thing that I um, take way too seriously, all of my friends would know this of me and it is no great surprise that the thing that I take way too seriously is going to the movies right? Or social etiquette in going to the movies, right? Because the price that you pay to go to a movies these days should involve some kind of social etiquette, right? Because when I go to the movies, I'm going to have an experience with the movie, not an experience with the person chomping on their popcorn next to me or rustling like their, their, um, their paper bag through key moments in the movie. You know, like no one seems to eat when the action scenes are on. And the action scenes finish and everyone starts chewing and munching on their food and rustling the bag and sniffing. And I came up with a way to fix it, right? This is what you do. This is a million dollar, four million dollar idea. Is that you take all the snacks that are sold in those paper bags, the crunchy plastic bags, and you put them in these like sock-like garments so that when people are in the auditorium, you can't hear anything, right? How good is that? I've got a better one. I've got a better one. I knew you wouldn't like the first one because you don't have vision. So I'm going to give you another one. What you would do is that you would put, this idea is brilliant, put a headphone jack into every single seat, just like you're in a plane. So when everyone else around you is talking, you just plug it in your own headphones in your own little world. Million dollar idea. You clapping, Lillian? You're allowed to clap in this church. I'm one of those crazy people that likes going to the movies on my own, which is a good thing because my wife hates going to the movies with me because I take it far too seriously. I would quite happily move five or six different times to get in the perfect position for my perfect experience of going to the movies. I take it far too seriously. Is faith one of those things that we should take far too seriously? Is it right that we 
think about our faith in a tempered kind of way where we should take a lot of things seriously and faith is certainly not one of those things. Is that the kind of advice that we should lean on? My dad once said to me when I was younger, if faith gets you through your day, that's fine, but don't let it rule your life. Is that good advice? What do we risk if we keep one foot in the faith camp and one foot in the camp of worldliness? What do we risk losing? Well, tonight we're going to find out through our study of 10 verses in the uh, letter of James. And we're going to start tonight with the most obvious question. Why should I bother taking my faith seriously? Why should I bother taking my faith seriously? Well, you need to know the letter of, letter of James was written by um, Jesus' brother and it was written to what uh, James describes as the uh, dispersion. So it's a scattered church living outside Israel. And James' biggest problem with this community is that they were having one foot inside the faith camp and one foot inside the world's camp. They had started by the faith, but they had not continued by the faith. They've become Christians who are not taking their faith too seriously. And in chapter 4, we read this. Look down in your Bibles in verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And what kind of passion is James referring to? Well, verse 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. At one point in time, they were devoted people. They were devoted people living by faith, but they were not continuing to live by faith. The word passions there, or it could be translated in the Greek, pleasures. James is referring to here a kind of coveting or lusting after the possessions of other people. And there was real trials and temptations and tribulations that the early church was experiencing, particularly in, in um in this area that James is writing into. And it would seem that they started living by faith, that James would call these people brothers, but they were not continuing to live by faith, but now looked at every single person's possessions, the possessions that everyone else had around them, and they saw that other people's possessions or lusting after other people's possessions was going to solve the situations that they were in. In the midst of their trials, and there were many in the early church that traded their faith in God for faith in the world. And this is where people get um, worldliness way wrong. Worldliness is not, about, not necessarily about the kind of music you listen to or the kind of people that you hang around. And it's not necessarily the kind of career that you're going after. Worldliness is substituting hope in Christ and his provisions for hope in the world and its provisions. So worldliness is substituting hope in Christ and all the things that he provides, every single promise that he is faithful to bring into account in our life for hope in the world and its provisions. And what James is pointing out here is that the reason that your passions are at war within you and there is war within your community is because the thing that you're hoping to satisfy you was never intended to bring any satisfaction at all. Uh, on Friday, I took my um, boy to uh, Civic Park Playground. And my boy had this excellent idea of resolving the problem of not enough bark chips at the playground. And so what my boy's strategy was, <coughs> was not a great strategy, is that he went, to, um, he went to where these bark chips were, 
and he would pick up these bark chips. He would come around here and he was so excited to show me. He would come around here and he'd pick up these bark chips and then he'd walk around here and then he'd drop the bark chips to fill it back up. And he did this three or four times, right? Three or four times he'd go around and he'd pick up these bark chips and he'd go, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he'd walk around here and he'd drop the bark chips exactly back in the same place that they already came from. That's not entirely different to what's happening in our world. The pattern of the world is broken and needs a healer, but instead of turning to the healer, too many people are returning back to the same broken pattern of the world. They're expecting that brokenness, if you add a bit more brokenness, will bring you healing, when at best it brings you distraction. The real danger is that social media gives everyone a voice, right? And if you're a bit good-looking and you buy yourself a few thousand followers, you can claim that you've experienced this incredible healing that now everyone can experience a certain kind of healing. But the problem with these people on social media is that they haven't lived for long enough to realise whether what they have is healing or what they have is just a distraction. And what you, walk around, what, you, what you see is people walking around with things that they thought should satisfy them, really bringing no satisfaction at all. And people might say, who really cares, right? Who cares as long as they're happy, as long as there's a smile on their face? Is, there, is it really a problem if my three-year-old thinks that he's solving a problem when really he's solving no problem at all? Is that really a problem? Well, of course it's not. He's three years old, he doesn't know what he's doing. The problem is that when, when people step into significant seasons of their life, people trade away their faith for something that was really never intended to bring any satisfaction at all. The problem that James is pointing out here and the dangers that he speaks into here is that when you substitute faith in God and continuing to live in faith in God for worldliness, you'll experience a lack of peace within you and a lack of peace around you. And it can attack you in every different season of your life. When you're young, the world offers you popularity and so you pursue popularity and you think at school that the world is your oyster because you're the most popular one and so you pick on all the nerds and then the nerds turn out to be your boss later on in life. <laughs> you get a little bit older and you think that sex will bring you ultimate satisfaction and then what you realise as life goes on is that sexual, sex without intimacy just breeds brokenness. You get a little bit older in life and then you see people buying cars and people buying houses and they go into ridiculous amounts of debt because they think that things that were never intended to satisfy would satisfy them. They don't get healing, they get a distraction. And to James, the problem here is not that these Christians are taking their faith too seriously. The problem is that they're not taking their faith seriously enough. And what's happening is a lack of peace within them and a lack of peace without, around them. That's not all that James says will happen when you don't take your faith seriously enough. James also says, and you could read this section as the thesis for the whole uh, letter of James. If you look down in your Bibles in verse 4, he writes some really strong words, really strong words. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world will make himself an enemy of God. Incredible language that James, is, James uses here. Intentional language that James uses here. 
Interestingly, uh, the original Greek would translate the opening verse here to read in the feminine, saying adulteresses. And it obviously refers to the parts of Scripture where the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And he's saying, James is saying, that fooling around in the world is like a wife fooling around with a husband, who, with a man who is not her husband. And the marriage relationship is supposed to be this place where intimacy is experienced and trust overflows. When I first got married, it was a, um, a, a jarring experience coming home and having someone in your house all the time. And it was a jarring experience the first time you sleep in bed with someone else and you're like, you're just scared about knocking into someone else. But one of the coolest things about marriage is that you kind of argue and fight differently. And what I mean by that is that you don't have this fear that the other person is going anywhere. And when you're dating uh, and you get into an argument, sometimes you have this narrative in the back of your mind like, maybe this is the fight, that, the straw that's going to break the camel's back, right? But marriage is really about this commitment where you tell the person that I'm not going anywhere no matter what happens. And that's why marriage is such a powerful illustration that, the, that Jesus uses to describe his relationship with the church because Christ died for us and in doing so declared that his commitment to loving us is unshakable. He'll never suddenly change his mind and close the door. He'll never suddenly change his mind and choose the exit door. What does it mean to take, not take your faith seriously? Well, to James, he would describe it as something as tragic as adultery where you live in a covenant relationship with someone and you would spend your time ignoring that relationship for the sake of earthly pleasures that were never intended to satisfy. What does it mean not to take your faith seriously? What James would say is that you, are, you become an enemy of God. Now, it's harsh language, but I'd also say that it's fair language because I don't think that you can call yourself a friend of God and be unrepentant, Keyword: being unrepentant, about getting drunk when so many lives are destroyed by the effects of alcohol. I don't know how you could call yourself a friend of God and be unrepentant about sleeping around when so many people live in regret over their sexual past. To James, the issue that is tearing this church apart isn't that they're taking their faith too seriously, it's that they're, taking, that they're not taking their faith seriously enough. Church members are fighting with church members, church members are at war within themselves, and the church members are making themselves an enemy of God. This is a big problem, so let's ask the most obvious question that we need to ask, how do I take my faith seriously? If standing with one foot in the world and one foot in a relationship with God is not going to work out for us and it brings us to be, have a war within us and a war with the people around us as we lust after their possessions and it makes us an enemy of God, well, how do I take my faith seriously? Well, look down at verse 6. It says, But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here's the command. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The Greek word for submit here is hupotasso. And it appears 31 times in the New Testament. And the, the, the hupo means under and the tasso means to arrange with a full meaning, to be, full meaning here to be put under or to yield to another. And the Greeks would use this uh, to describe um, arranging military troops under the command of a leader. How powerful is this description of submitting? It's arranging oneself under the command 
of a divine viewpoint. Arranging oneself under the command of a divine viewpoint. You know, the call to submit to God is not the same as having a boss. And why is that? It's because when you leave work, that person is no longer your boss. Well, you know that really strange experience you have when you, you're in school and you see like a teacher at Tea Tree Plaza and then you start tucking in your shirt and you realise you have no authority over me here. You don't know what to call them. You don't know whether to call them by their first name or whether to call them by their last name because they lose their authority. Or, or you know how when you're younger and you'd like drive a car on dad's farm or you, you know, you're younger and you'd drive a motorbike on, on dad's farm and you could do that because on private property, you can drive a car around and it's a whole bunch of other stuff. Please don't go and drive cars like unregistered. But for the sake of this illustration, it is true. <laughs> it is true that on private property, you can drive a motorbike around because it is true that authority in this world will always extend only to a point. That's not the kind of authority, not the kind of submission that God would have us bring into our lives. Submitting to God is about bringing every area of your life under the Lordship of Christ, every area. There is a scene in the Gospel of Luke where um, Pharisees are trying to get uh, um, Jesus caught up in a political drama. And what they do is that they ask um, Jesus whether they should be paying taxes or not. And Jesus uh, takes a coin, and on that coin he asks them who they see, and they say Caesar, and he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And people have misunderstood this verse to say, see, see, God gets God's stuff, and I get my stuff. So in my life, I can have my own things and God can have his things. That's why you shouldn't take your faith too seriously because there is a separation. And they missed the whole point of that passage. That Jesus isn't just making a political point. Jesus is reframing the whole argument to say that if it's right to give back to Caesar the things that bear his image, then it is right to give back to God the things that bear his image. Or well, Paul would say it like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. What do we mean? What do people mean when they say that you shouldn't take your faith too seriously? Well, it's a version of, it's a Christian version of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And what happens in the church should stay in the church. And they go, well, it doesn't matter. What you do on Sundays is up to you. It's great if you go to, the ch- go to church on Sunday. Just keep that as your business. Don't let that infect every single other area of your life. If you're having a great time at church, then what's good for you is good for you. But here's the real tragedy, and this is a tragedy. If James says that submitting yourself to God will result in the devil fleeing from you, then that must mean that resisting God means that the devil draws near to you. What a shame that people don't understand the supernatural reality of resisting God. That when you resist God, you allow the devil to draw near to you in your life and it comes to have access to certain parts of your life that you never intended the devil to have access to. That you thought it was a great strategy to treat your house, to treat your life like a house of many rooms where Christ could have access to some, but not access to all. And with the youth ministry, I shared with the youth ministry a while ago, 
about living um, with a couple of housemates. And would you believe it that there was a season in my life where I was the clean one? And um, I lived in this house with these two blokes, and we made this rule that as long as um, mess stayed in your room, then everything was okay. And so the living room was spotless, the kitchen was spotless, but the rooms were not spotless. And so I, I was the one that bought all the cutlery and all the coffee cups and all that, and I couldn't find a coffee cup one day, and so I went to one of the housemates' uh, rooms, and I found 14 coffee cups in his room, <laughs> full of coffee, full of milk, full of juice. I found like a half-eaten half snitty pack, a half-eaten walk-in-a-box pack. I, I saw some brown stuff on the ground that I was praying was chocolate. I went to my next, uh, um, the next housemate's uh, room and I opened up the door and he like squashed all of um, his McDonald's boxes into just different cupboards and wardrobes in his room because he couldn't be bothered putting it away. And everything seemed fine, right? Good deal, just keep it in your room. Until I come home and we lived in this two-story unit with the uh, rooms at the back and I could open up the front door and I could smell whether their doors were open. Because what happens in one room does affect every other room. And it's exactly the same in our Christian life. What happens in one area of our life will seep into and will affect every single other area of our life. Every other area of our life. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And what he was talking about here is spiritual leprosy. He's not saying that if you sin, you should actually cut your right eye out because what your right eye was looking at, your left eye was probably looking at as well. And so he's making a comment about um, radical amputation, cutting off everything in your life that will cause you sin. But he is also talking about spiritual leprosy. What that means is that if you bring sin into one area of your life, it will affect every single other area of your life. It is no great strategy to reserve some parts of your life for Christ and give some parts of your life to the world. I was so encouraged by our pastor's message this morning, so encouraged by it, so, so encouraged by it, bro. And he shared in Ephesians 3 this morning and he talked about um, this idea of um, Christ dwelling or making his home inside of our hearts. Now, allowing Jesus to make his home in our hearts is this idea of Jesus having unrestrained access, unrestricted access. Amen. And when we go into someone else's house, we don't have unrestrained or unrestricted access. You can't just open up the pantry and you can't walk into any room that you want. You can't open up secret doors to see what's inside. But in your own home, every door is available. And the invitation tonight is that when you submit to the Lord, that you would open up every single area, every single area unto the grace of Christ. That God's grace and kindness and mercy longs to meet you tonight, not just in part of your life, but in every area of your life. So the question is, how is your submission going? Is every area of your life being yielded to Christ? Are your actions pure, but perhaps you're holding on to bitterness in your heart? Would you perhaps describe yourself as a Sunday Christian, where God is only infected, or God is only at home in one out of seven days of your week? For those of you that say, yes, that's me, well, the logical next question is, well, how do I submit myself to God? What's the first step? Well, let's look at the passage. How do I submit myself to God? Let's look at verse 8. It says, draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, this is not saying that we take the first step in offering forgiveness. All throughout the Bible, it is God that initiates forgiveness towards us. James here is talking to Christians, those already saved who have drifted, and he invites them to receive the gift of repentance. Repentance takes place not only when a sinner is first saved, but also is the daily part of their life. That the Christian is invited to receive and unwrap the gift of repentance that is bought for us through the gift of Jesus. Uh, theologian Thomas Watson wrote, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. In this simple statement, Thomas Watson is making the point that repentance is a gift of God's Spirit, or as the Apostle Paul would say, In Romans 2 verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That God has been so kind to you that he gives you the gift of repentance so that you might receive his mercy. Why is there such a problem with accepting this gift? Why is there such a barrier often inside of our hearts when it comes to accepting this gift of mercy? Well, I'd like to um, suggest that one of the reasons may be is because we've never had a judge like our father. We've never had a judge like our father. Often, you'd probably know um, that when you've got something to confess to someone, you often try to pick the best time whether you've done something wrong to your parents or a friend or a teacher or someone you're dating and you've planned to confess or admit you're wrong, you're always searching for the best time, right? That hopefully you can pick that moment. You often put off, like, you often put off admitting you're wrong because it's not the right moment. Maybe they're too tired or maybe they're too um, busy with something else. And what you're doing by putting it off and trying to pick a perfect time, is that you're trying to manipulate a moment of mercy. You're trying to manipulate the situation so that you can hope that you can get mercy. And we so often don't come to God and, can, and confess our sin and seek repentance because we think that we need to manipulate God or God's going to treat us, God is ever going to treat us differently meaning that we think that God has this amount of grace for us and that it's starting to run dry. And maybe if we come to God at the wrong time, he's going to be disappointed in us. What does that look like in action? It looks like we miss church on Sunday because we feel guilty about something we did during the week and we want to clean ourselves up before we come back. Or we seek time away from our church community and our life groups and we ostracize relationships because... We've got sin in our life and we just want to clean ourselves up before we can come back to Jesus. But what we've forgotten is that we are all sinners saved by grace. None of us have cleaned ourselves up. None of us. None of us have the power to cleanse ourselves. None of us had the power to send Jesus so that we might be redeemed and restored if we would confess like Richard did. None of us have that power. It has always been, it has always been the consistency of God's unrestrained grace. The consistency of God's unrestrained grace. That The Bible says in John 1, uh, 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. His grace and his truth has not run dry in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done this week. It doesn't matter what you are planning to do this week. God's grace is enough for you. Whatever your situation is. You don't need to manipulate circumstances like you've done to people in your life so that you can receive grace and mercy. Every single moment of your life is an opportunity to repent, to come and kneel before Christ, to confess sin and receive his mercy and forgiveness. Every single moment of our life. Does that mean that we should treat our sin lightly? Well, no, not at all. Look down in uh, verse 8. It says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And we need to be clear on what James is saying and what James is not saying. James is not saying that the a life of a Christian is a life of gloom. He actually says in, um, in James that we should consider it all joy or consider it pure joy when we face trials of various kinds. But what he is saying is that there is a place in the life of the believer to mourn over the sins of the past and to grieve over the reality of sin. And this week I was showing my son, like getting my son acquainted with some of my favorite movies. And I wanted to show him The Lion King and things like that. But um, I showed him an American tale. I don't know if you know the movie An American Tale about the mice who are like are leaving for America because there are no cats in America and the streets are full of cheese. You remember that one? And, um, the, and, and Fifle, who's the little mouse, he gets estranged from his father. They get like, I don't know if estranged is the right word, they get lost from each other. And uh, then at the end of the movie, <clears throat> they like reunite and it's a super emotional scene. Whereas like, um, like, like the dad's like, Fifle, Fifle, Papa, Papa. You remember this scene? I remember watching that scene and I'm just like crying my eyes out. And I was just thinking this, thinking this week as we think about uh, grieving over sin is that do we grieve over the right things in life? Do we grieve over our football team not playing well and not getting the right grades and uh, missing out on the sales at shops? Are we grieving over the reality of what sin does in our life? That sin in our life causes a war within us and a war, a war around us. And unrepentant sin it makes us an enemy of God. Have we grieved rightly over our sin? Have we grieved rightly over our sin? Perhaps for some of us the question isn't, are you taking your faith too seriously? It should be, are you taking your faith seriously enough? Are you taking your faith seriously enough? and accepting this free gift of grace. Now, people tend to think that the devil's only weapon to cause harm in someone's life is to make them um, like a serial killer. And so you see them on you know, Netflix as you scroll past different things, and you can see the devil's handiwork at work there, or you see people on the news, and, and you see the devil's handiwork. But the devil, does not, he has more weapons than just making people look evil. He also uses prosperity. When you're suffering, you, you say things like, why God? And then when you prosper, you say things like, I'm God. And you get distracted from the reality that we live in a world of supernatural forces. And this week I was, um, 
One of my favourite storytellers passed away. One of my favourite storytellers, Stan Lee, um, passed away at the age of 95. And Stan, Stan Lee uh, grew up in um, poverty in New York and grew into one of the most celebrated comic book authors of all time. Most celebrated. And if you don't know who Stan Lee is, if you've ever seen a Marvel movie, he'll pop up as a cameo along the way. And he's a guy that created um, the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, X-Men, Daredevil, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, and heaps more, heaps more. And when Stan Lee passed away this week, um, you know, people were celebrating his life, and the man did live a remarkable life. He really did live a remarkable life. But I was, um, I was just aware of, like, you know, different people just posting, like, a, a hashtag rest in peace. And the, what we know of Stanley's life is that he claimed to be uh, Jewish and he did not claim to be a Christian. And whether he was a Jew by cultural conviction, we don't know. But we know that uh, in his life, his fame and fortune got the best of him. That he wasn't interested in spiritual matters. And the Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? A guy named Randy Alcorn says, for Christians, this present life is the closest they'll ever come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will ever come to heaven. And I was grieved this week hearing about a man who had got the whole world. And he was so celebrated. But he's not celebrating with Christ today. There is an opportunity for us to look at our own lives and say, what are we taking too seriously? Am I taking my job too seriously, my career too seriously, my relationships too seriously? Am I taking my faith seriously enough? Because there is nothing that you have done, friends, nothing that you have done that God's grace does not reach further than your situation. And if you would just be willing to repent before Christ and allow every single area of your life to be submitted to Christ, you will not receive ridicule from Christ. You will not receive opposition from Christ. You will receive his unrestrained, committed mercy in your life. The question I have for you is, are you taking your faith seriously enough? Because when you do, and if you do, you will meet a wonderful saviour. I'd love you to bow your heads and close your eyes as the band comes back to the stage. We've um, been so encouraged by a testimony tonight of a man who was lost and met Jesus. Been so encouraged tonight by worship and <clears throat> so encouraged by hearing about the grace of our saviour. I do know that there are many situations and seasons in my life where I do feel like... Um, I've doubted the grace of God and, and doubted the kindness of God and thought that God's grace wouldn't extend into that room that I kept hidden from Christ. And I would just love to pray for you if that's you, that you have this room where you've told Jesus that it's off limits and you would like to bring every area, every area under the Lordship of Christ because I tell your friend, God's word promises you that you will meet the kind, gracious, loving King Jesus. If that's you tonight and you've held back from Christ and you would like tonight to be able to repent, to submit your life to Jesus, and you would like me to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would be your source of strength, I would love to pray for you now. Would you just raise your hand while no one's looking around so that I might know to pray for you? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Once you put your hand up, you can put it back down. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your kindness towards us. Thank you for the power of your truth. Is there anyone else here tonight that I might be able to pray for? Praise God. Praise God. God, you are so kind to us. We have done nothing to attract your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your ministry. God, I pray for every person here tonight that would long to submit every area of their life unto Christ. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower them, give them the strength to repent, to yield to you, to submit to you, to trust you with their comfort, to trust you with their strength, to trust you with their satisfaction. You are the great Redeemer. God, we just pray that we would be a church that leans upon you, that doesn't have one foot in the world and one foot in our faith, but we would have both feet by your Spirit planted in our faith so that we might live every day glorifying you and bringing joy to the city. Pray these things in your name. Amen.